Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Jibak. That is a horrible pronunciation of hi, how are you in Dinka. Jibak. Dinka is a Sudanese dialect that is this week's guest's first language. Salam or mahaba. Again, meaning hello, how are you in Arabic this time? Again, I will have butchered it horribly. Arabic being this week's guest's second language. And now, hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Howie Games Part A. Now we are on to this week's guest's third language. Two more than me, I'm not sure about you. Anyway, the point of this intro, immigrant communities all around the world do some phenomenal things to uproot their lives and travel somewhere completely foreign to them in the hope of forging a better life for their families. A new language, that's often just the starting point. Just picture yourself in this situation for a moment. You and your family get on a plane You fly to the other side of the world where you do not know anyone, a country you know nothing about that speaks a language you don't know. That is what so many immigrants do. Majak Dor and his family, that's what they've done. This full episode is coming out today before the player profile to celebrate today's release of Majak's book, Majak, Majak Dor, written in conjunction with Heath O'Loughlin, released through Penguin. You can get it online or in-store everywhere. Right now, I couldn't recommend it more highly. It is not just a sports book. It's a story of an immigrant's journey from Africa to Australia, a story of hardship, of joy, of racism, of mental health, footy, and lots, lots more. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Majak Dor is known to the AFL community as a ripped, athletic, high-marking, what I would call bums-on-seat style player. Drives it a long way from goal. Oh, Dor! Wow! Spectacular. This is as good a mark as we've seen this year. Oh, I reckon have a look at that. Oh, if, if you saw that in isolation, you would think this man is the superstar of the game, wouldn't you? Now, as you're about to hear, the fact that Madge is playing a professional sport that he did not even know existed until he was a teenager, that is remarkable. But that is nothing compared to the rest of Madjack's story. As much as we cover in this conversation, it only scratches the surface of what's written about in Madge's book. Get hold of it, read it with your kids. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there can't they see they hold the key could make things better if they try oh my jaja tell me why won't they open up their eyes a warning actually it's not really a warning more just of a heads up to be aware that there is a conversation about suicide in this episode as always it is not for me to say what's appropriate for your family, but I would encourage my children aged 9 and 11 to listen to this episode in its entirety. It is full of so many important lessons. To be frank with you all, I probably need to say at this stage, at times I reckon I wasn't equipped for some of the conversations that take place in the episode, so I apologise up front for my lack of eloquence at times as I struggle to find the right words. In fact, I struggle to find any words at all at times. Sports commentators like myself often lord courage on the field. We do it frequently, but from where I sit, the book Madge has written and the conversations he is now having, that is a whole different level of courage. Thank you so much to Madge for sharing some of his story with me and in turn you. Go well, big man. This is the tale, so far, of Majak Dor. So when you search and then you find 
know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed In King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that has had a truly remarkable journey through life, which has been detailed in his new book, which is out today, Madge, Madge Door by Madge himself and Heath O'Loughlin, a long-term member of the North Melbourne Football Club, is Heath, and now Madge is continuing his footy journey on from the Kangaroos through to the Melbourne Footy Club. Madge, we've been trying to organise this for a while. I really appreciate your time. I'm fascinated about having a chat with you, mate. And firstly, it's good to see you. And secondly, congratulations on the book. I was sent an early copy and read it in a day and a half. It blew my mind, mate. Yeah, mate. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I'm very fortunate in, uh, and have this amazing opportunity that I can write a book, um, something that's going to be here for a long time, um, you know, after I'm gone. Um, Hendrix, my little one, he can read it and his kids' kids. So, um, yeah, it's, it's taken a while uh, to, to write, Good bit over two years and... Um, Sat down with Heath when the opportunity um, came up, and I asked him. Um, I've known the, I've known him for a long time, pretty much since day one, since since I got drafted to North. So um, felt really comfortable with Heath. Got a good relationship, and um, yeah, we've, um, we've we've done something nice together. And what was the process like? Obviously, which we'll discuss, mate. It's brought up some amazingly fantastic memories, probably some difficult memories as well. What was the process like sitting down and chatting and charting your incredible life to this point? Yeah, look, at the start, I didn't, didn't really know um, uh, how, you, how you construct or how you sit down and write a book. Never done it before, but Heath, Heath has some prior experience and. Um, you know, has written a couple of books um, before. So um, the first, the first few, ta- first few times, I was a little bit awkward. Uh, just didn't know yep. where um, where to start. And um, but obviously, started with my early, early, early childhood, um, growing up in Sudan, and then you know moved on um, towards you know living here, and then now my adulthood. So um, you know, it, it took a bit of time. You know, a couple of hours a week. Um, sitting down, going to Heath's house or at the footy club. But um, we did a fair chunk of it uh, in the hub last year. Um, you know, we had a lot of downtime and he was um, a couple of doors down. So he'd come to my room or I'd go to his room and um, sit down, have, have a cup, have a cup of tea and um, off we went. So, uh, yeah, it took a lot of hours, but um, no, it, 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 was, it, was, it was good um, to be able to reflect yeah, if you had to summarise the lesson of the book, mm-hmm. what would you say the lesson is that you've learnt in your life so far that you've put your heart and soul into in those pages, which, as I said, it's an incredible read. People should read it to understand not about sport but about life, about uh, people travelling from one part of the world and living in another and the difficulties and the positives there and multiculturalism, like there's so many parts of it that I took out of it. If you had to say, right, this book is about, what would you say? Um, the way I looked at it and the reason why I wanted to do it, it was more of a, um, I guess, to be able to relate to so many people um, in life, whether it's whether my experience with footy, um, been able to play footy for a while now and being in a football environment. Uh, but then also um, as a migrant, um, 
you know, migrating here to Australia um, on a refugee visa. Um, and those challenges that I've faced, um, you know, there's going to be a kid along the way that's that's going to that's going to migrate to Australia, and um, he'll have some difficulties. And I want that kid to pick up the book and, you know, read 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 some of the chapters in that book, and uh, and he can relate to me, and hopefully that can ease um, uh, his uh, his tough his tough experiences a little bit, and give him a bit that hope. But then, um, you know, also there's the mental health um, side of it. You know, someone that's struggling um, uh, to get going in their life, um, hopefully they can flip through that page and um, relate to how I've gone about it and um, probably just normalise um, uh, the mental health um, uh, battles. So, yeah. It's a great answer, mate. It, and this will happen. This will happen after this podcast. This will happen when people listen to the book. It will have already happened to you countless times. <laughs> so what is it like? when someone comes up to you, whether it's the mental health space, whether it's the, the the migrant space, can you imagine what it's like when a young bloke comes up to you that's come from the other side of the world and has heard your story and thought, oh, I can have a crack here too and look up to you? Like that's a beautiful gift that you're giving someone in the community. Yeah, like the way it feels like is um, I guess I look up to my mum and dad a fair bit and I think what they've been able to do and, um, you know, they've been so selfless Um you know, taking a risk first of taking a you know a big family. I'm, I've got I've got a lot of siblings. Mm. Um, they've been they've done that um, uh, for, for me for me to have a, a better life, a better future. And I think um, just being able to um, give back to people, you know, in a way, um, it's it, 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 it's it's a gift that I can't really measure. I, I'm not sure. Um, gonna if it's gonna change their life or what they're gonna do with some of the things they might talk to me about but um I, I, I know I know it's a uh, not too many people get the opportunity that I've had play footy you know relate to people um, in all aspects of life and I'm only 30 so um I think um, I get I get a lot of joy out of it um, when a young kid comes up and says oh you know I've started playing footy because of you or um, you know, only recently with my mental health stuff, people that have come up to me and just, you know, said, and said you know, you, you've inspired me to, um, to make some changes around my life. Um, you know, it, it, it just reiterates to me that, oh, okay, well, now I'm on the right path. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, if I've helped someone today, then I've, I've had a good day. Um, just a few huh. things, mate. So. Oh, mate, it's a, great, it's a great response. It's like, as I say, it's a gift that you're able to give people. I'd love to chat with you through various parts of the book and there'll be other parts that are obviously mm-hmm. a lot more difficult and that's up to you whether you want to talk about it, and we'll get to that mm-hmm. when we get to it and I'll be completely guided by you there, Madge. But uh, I, I, we spoke the other day and I said that I've been lucky enough to spend large chunks in Africa. I unfortunately haven't been to Sudan. I've been to Egypt where you spend a lot of time, I know, and I've spent some time throughout Africa and I've taken my family there. It's such a remarkable part of the world, but a very different part of the world to where we are here. Mm-hmm. So, mate, tell me about your mum and your dad and firstly your family and where you were born and tell me a little bit about that life because this is the part that really interests me because I don't think people understand <laughs> where you've come from and what you've done. Yeah, so, yeah, I was born in, um, I was born in Sudan, um, uh, and Khartoum. So mum and dad, mum and dad are from south of Sudan. So um, that's where they were born. And um, when the civil war broke um, in southern Sudan, 
uh, they migrated to the north. Um, you know, I think I, um, uh, I really want to be clear and and how they got there, but I'm pretty sure, um, you know, a lot of people just walked um, to say, to say from, I guess, from Victoria to um, New South Wales or a bit further. So they, mm. they, yeah, they walked. A lot of people didn't survive. Uh, lost their lives along the way. Um, Have you had that discussion with them at all, Madge? Be- because there is, there's books written about it where, you know, families are, are walking off I- into the sunset. Have you discussed that with your folks at all? Yeah, I've, I've spoken to them in bits and pieces, but not in great detail. Um, but, um, yeah, they, oh, dad, 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 mum and dad, they always talk about when they grew up in the village when they were younger um, and, uh, you know, dad would, would hurt, would... They grew up with cattle, so um, I'm from a tribe called the Dinka tribe, and um, uh, having cattle is uh, your most prized um, possession. Um, it's almost a cur- it's pretty much the currency, really, um, back in the day. So they, they had so much cattle, and you know, life was great for them. Um, yeah. So then, when the war broke, they moved to um, North Sudan. Just, just on that, Madge, we're, mate, we're not a political show, and, and I've read a lot about it before I talk to to you about it but can you give people just a a very basic top line explanation from where you sit as to what caused the war the troubles in Sudan yeah so um southern Sudan is a very um is a very rich um region of um of Sudan um in terms of um farming uh farmland um oil and um and just natural minerals um it's a gold mine for um you know, for, for anyone trying to go yeah. over there and mine, mine things and um, uh, build wealth or whatever. So, um, yeah, so the, it, it was a territory battle, but also there's um, there's a religion aspect to it. A lot of South Sudanese people are either Christian or have traditional beliefs. And uh, North Sudan um, is an Islamic, is an Islamic um, area. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was pretty much in... It was, it was pretty, they were pretty much clashing, and um, South Sudan at the time there were just there were just you know there were just people living in the village. Um, they had their customs and traditions and stuff. Um, their own laws that that were um, were developed by um, uh, you know chiefs and all that stuff. Um, where the where the government of South Sudan uh, had a had had an had an army. They had a structure around things. So. They're a bit more powerful, um, so they they killed a lot of people. I think it was about, I think it was three million three million people yeah. were displaced uh, worldwide. Um, uh, civil war that's that's gone on for over twenty one years. Um, but I I've been lucky in in the sense that I never physically saw any war or anyone being shot or anything like that um, compared to what mum and dad have seen. And um, so to come back, so then I was born. I was born in Khartoum, um, in a uh, in an area called Umdurman. I um, I was I was born um, just before they got to hospital. Um, huh. Yeah, you came a bit early, did you, Madge? You were keen to get out and have a poke around. Yeah, I came out pretty early. So um, oh, there's always that story. Um, uh, yeah, just before I came before I got to the hospital. So. Um, 
came to the world and... Um, where, where did you sit in the family? What number child are you and how many are there? Number three. So there's there's nine of us. Right. Yeah. Wow. She's a big old family then. Yeah, it's a big family, Howie. Um, What's the first thing you remember? Um, growing up? Yeah, yeah. Like what is the first, you know, and it's hard sometimes because you see photos or you have dreams. What's the first thing you can actually remember as a, as a, as a young fella? I just, just remember always coming back from school and uh, we'd finish at midday. Um, I wasn't sure why, maybe because of the heat or, but I'd always come back, finish school at midday, start pretty early um, and then just walk, walk home and then, yeah, just go out and play um, with the kids in the neighbourhood. And what what were you playing at that stage? Was football, soccer? Soccer, yeah, soccer. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So for those that, like people need to, Jump online and Google Sudan. You know, you're bordered by the Sahara Desert. Um, so it is, you mentioned knocking off school. It is a hot, hot, hot part of the world. Yeah. I mean, um, we're pretty lucky you had shoes and stuff. There's some kids who didn't have shoes. And if you walked outside barefoot, um, the sun would be in your feet. So um, I, remember, I remember spending a lot of time with family, um, grandparents, my uncles and, um, and my cousins. And where did you live? Like, obviously, there's a lot of... The, the, the family was expanding. What we know as a traditional house would be very different, although Khartoum, obviously, as the, the major city in Sudan, where were you living? So we, we lived uh, closer to the city when I was a bit younger, and then yeah. um, we moved out um, to the outer suburbs um, of, uh, of Khartoum, and that was... Um, that was a bit... It was a bit... Uh, it was a bit bare when we, when we first got there. Mum and Dad got got all this land um so it was a pretty big house uh, the house we we eventually settled in and um i remember quite clearly um when the house was getting built uh, they were building they were building the wall around the uh, around the house and um using mud bricks and um, all sorts of stuff um and uh yeah it was it was pretty basic didn't have a fridge um didn't have a tally uh used we used a um uh, uh, an iron made out of obviously iron, but they'd use um, hot coals On and, the coals, and, yep. um, and iron clothes. Uh, go get the water from the from the from the village pump, which was only a couple of uh, it's about 100, 200 meters away from the house. But um, yeah, carry the water, bring it back. Um, yeah, everything was done was done by hand. Um, there wasn't a lot of machinery or anything, and. Madge, as you said, from from the from the Dinka people, what, what is the traditional language spoken? And then, what were you speaking at school at that stage in Khartoum? Yeah, so I spoke spoke Arabic. Um, that's what I learned at school, and uh, that's what I spoke. And then um, Dinka uh, is the language and the tribe. So I spoke Dinka. Do you do you still speak Dinka now? Yeah, I still speak Dinka now. Yeah. Could you like could you say good day? How are you going? To me, like just so I can get a feel for the for the for the sound of the dialect. Yeah. Right. And then whatever you've said to me there, like a greeting, um, in in Arabic. Um, if I said uh, a greeting in Arabic. Yeah. Uh, okay. And at what point do I go Shokran and Afwan? That's it's about the Shukran or Afwan. <laughs> Shukran um, is um, if I if I uh, offered you say if I offered you something, yeah, and you say no thanks, and or if I offered you something and you accepted it, you say Shukran. Right. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, you know a little bit now, Harry. Well, I, I, mate, I spent a bit of time in, um, obviously, in Egypt and then in Morocco as well, um, trying to get a few waves. So it, it, I can remember cow cow with peanuts in Arabic. I don't know why I remember cow, that, cow yeah, cow, because yeah. I was <laughs> trying to get peanuts at yeah. some stage, man. But anyway, so, mate, um, you're growing up in, in Sudan. Life sounds like it's okay. But then you left Sudan and it, it's amazing when you talk about it in in your book, the family ends up in Cairo in Egypt, which is one hell of a crazy city for anyone that's been there. What, what causes that move and how, how old were you at that stage? Um, I was uh, I was nine when we left, yeah? Nine? Yeah. So I left in the middle of the night and I um, I sort of didn't understand. There, were, there's, there was an incident that happened uh where dad was um, detained um, and um, he was he was taken in the middle of the night. Uh, Do you know why? Um, I, I, he would, um, so he was heavily involved in the church. So he would um, he would go and rescue, because the, the civil war was still happening. So him and the church would, would, um, would go and rescue these kids who were pretty much um, on their way to becoming child soldiers. Bloody hell. And uh, yeah, so, um, so he did that and um, you know, for a while, um, it, it even um, it even came closer to home that uh, a next door neighbour's kid, and I was close, and I was close with um, with his younger brother. Uh, he was, you know, he was off the rails a little bit, but then found himself um, uh, on his way to becoming a child soldier. So, 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 so sorry, Madge, just sorry to interrupt again. Um, <laughs> Mate, if I stop you too many times, just tell me to shut up. But no, I, no, I, no, that's fine. Yeah. But I've got so so many questions, and I just I'm just trying to show people how different an upbringing you had to a lot of people in this part of Australia. Not all people, but a lot of people. So the child soldier, explain that to me. This is this is kids literally enlisted with no choice into battle at a very young age. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty much kidnapped. Um, you know. Um, uh, with no choice at all uh, in the matter and taken to, um, I guess, um, to camps or where the, where the, where the war is and, um, and pretty much fight against their own people. So it was um, because the, 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 the South Sudan, uh, the, the Sudanese government had, had their own military, but they were also forcing some of these young kids to fight against the South Sudanese people. So... It was, um, yeah, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, kids as young as twelve uh, being forced to um, go commit uh, these horrific crimes um, and have no choice in the matter. So um, I guess that, that that happened a fair. That was very common. Um, and uh, even if the ki- after the kids are rescued, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd be so traumatized, and you know, they'd be. Um, yeah, it was hard for them to integrate back to normal everyday life and all that stuff, so. So if you walk, the old expression about walking a mile in someone else's shoes, you get a completely different perspective. Adults will listen to this and kids will listen to this. Like, you've got a young bloke now. You imagine if he was, um, Hendrix got to 11 and he disappeared out your door and had to go and fight a war. If it was my kids, you just, you have no concept. You would have more of a concept than I would, but... How damaging and how that would be for a family. Yeah, man, I think that's that's a thing because um, 
also at the time, um, the dad was um, not my dad. Um, this uh, ne- the next door neighbor's uh, uh, the father. He was he was also in the army. So um, it was just it was just the, it was just the mum and the kids. So she couldn't go and um, she couldn't go and look for the for the for the child. So at, uh, it really did put my dad in a position um, where he was he was potentially saying. Um, this could end up. This 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 could be one of my kids. Um, if I don't do something about it, and yeah. I guess the danger was um, he was putting his life at risk. Uh, but yeah. So it it gets to a situation in the middle of the night. You're nine years of age. What are your memories? What what happened, mate? So I think maybe um, maybe eight or so at the time. And then, yeah, because um, we had this big gate uh, to the house and um, hearing uh, knocking and stuff, um, all this commotion. And um, the, the army comes storming into the house and looking for my old man and um, they finally get him and um, load him in the back of a ute. And I, um, I remember this quite clearly, uh, running after the ute, um, just in tears, just not sure what, what's going on. Um, because I, I absolutely adored my old man when I was younger. Um, still do, but um, we used to, um, you know, I pretty much used to sleep um, next to him. So, um, and then, um, yeah, he was he was gone for a while. Um, he was locked up. Um, he got tortured and pretty much told, you know, if um, if you keep doing what you're doing, um, we're going to kill you. And um, so you know, I had no idea about all this stuff until I was a bit, a little bit older, um, asking my siblings and that uh, what happened to dad. Because I, because I remember, I remember the incident, but I just don't, yeah. just don't. Um, time has passed, and I was too young and couldn't really uh, make sense of it all. And then, yeah, so um, that was the reason why my fa- we had to leave. Uh, uh, we just wasn't safe, but my dad had to stay back. Um, uh, to, to make sure he's, you know, uh, he wasn't, he was uh, pretty much reporting back to the, uh, to authorities um, on a regular basis. So and they wouldn't allow him to flee the country. So, so how did you guys as a family, how, how big was your family at this stage and what was the process for you to end up in Cairo? Uh, so we were one of, we were six, there were six of us. And then uh, okay. the process was um, we had to, um, uh, get some papers ready, uh, passport, uh, visa, and all that stuff, and um, get a get some train tickets and ferry tickets, and um, yeah, pretty much uh, whatever mum and dad had, um, they put it all aside, and um, and then uh, we left. Um, uh, so uh, a little funny story. I, I didn't have a tally when I was growing up. <laughs> Um, so it, to, to make the situation a bit easier, mum and dad, would, you know, would, would say it's either we get a, we buy you guys a, a TV, um, uh, black and white with a dial, <laughs> <laughs> or um, or go to Egypt and um, yeah, and live there. So and then off we went, and um, it was quite a journey. Uh, what three days I think it was, and in the train. Um, uh, in the outskirts of, uh, of Sudan, uh, it's nothing but desert. Yeah. Um, 
and then uh, met met some people that knew my dad uh, on this trip, and uh, they just tell me stories, and um, you'd see at, at sunset uh, because there was there was also a mix of a mixed bag of people. Um, people would hop off and pray, um, you know, at sunset, and you'd see them running after the train, trying to hop back on. <laughs> so, yeah. So then, uh, so then, yeah. That's 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 the reason why we, we had to leave. So. so where did you go? You, you get to Cairo. Did you have friends to stay with? Like, there's six of you. It's not like you could just. Yeah. Like... Uh, we we had family friends uh, that were already living in Egypt, uh, uh, dist- and distant family. So it was it was a big family. Uh, there were also a big family. There was three other families and my family. So four families in um in a three bedroom. Um, Apartment and um, huh. and everyone just sort of there was there was a lot of mattresses but slept on the ground um, wherever you can find space. Um, obviously the, the mums and the younger kids had priority to beds, but the boys and that um, we all slept in um, in the living room. The girls slept in the other living room, but um, it was chaos. Um, middle of the night, having to get up to go to the toilet. You'd have to, you know, tiptoe around and all that stuff so you don't step on anyone. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty tough. It was really tough, but uh, I guess didn't really have any uh, any other choice. So, and Madge, again, reading your book, you did some did you do some work when you were in Cairo as a as a little fella? Yeah, so I. Um, it's one of those stories, um, I think, when I started the book, um, you read about how I lost my finger and all that stuff. But, yeah, I worked, I worked um, because we, there, was, there was one night, um, I think, just, just the frustration and the stress of being cramped in the little house, um, you know, got, got the better of, uh, of the adults and my mum and they had a big argument and, and uh, we were homeless for one night. We went and slept at a... Um, you know, at, a, at the local church. And then uh, after that, um, because my dad, there was nothing my dad could do. Um, he was limited with work back then and um, he couldn't really help us out financially. So uh, my older brother, my two older brothers, they they had enough. They said, you know what, well, we're going to go to work. And they started working, um, you know, for a few weeks. And then I, after that, I was like, well, if they can work, then surely I can do something about it. So off I went and started working um, as well. Um, what were you doing? I, was, I started working at a um, carpentry shop. So How old were you? Uh, nine. Yeah. So how'd you get the job? I, I just asked the bloke, um, just walked up, <laughs> <laughs> walked up to the shop and, um, and I asked him and he, and he said, yeah. Yeah, no worries. You um, you can start off by just cleaning up, um, sawdust, making tea, uh, little jobs, nothing big. But then, um, as I got um, as I got a bit more experience, um, you know, he he started, you know, asking me to um, hold the clamp, uh, put put the clamps in, um, apply the glue to some of the to some of the joinery. Um, yeah, so did that for a little bit and, and what happened to your finger uh so then i, I left i left the sh- i left the carpentry shop and i went to a um uh a sort of uh sewing machine shop where they where they made all sorts of stuff um uh blind uh you know 
clothes, pants, whatever. And uh, I was pretty, um, I was curious uh, as a young kid and I was playing around with the sewing machine. Uh, so there's the belt, uh, uh, the belt that keeps the, that keeps the machine going. Um, so I was, I was tracing um, this metal uh, wheel that, that the belt that the belt sort of sits on, and uh, and it sort of slipped, and my finger got caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't uh, wasn't pretty, but um, no. Yeah, so the finger got caught between the belt and the and the and the wheel, and um, yeah, it crushed my finger. That was pretty. Um, uh, that was pretty stressful for my mum, but they um, they really looked after me. These people that I was working with took me to hospital. Uh, mum came and uh, yeah, I lost my finger, but you know I was, I was able to get uh, the right medical attention. Um, yeah. Back to Madge in a moment. Next up on the pod, one of the most driven athletes this country has ever produced, dual triathlon world champion Emma Carney. M trained so hard for so long, it almost killed her. I was defibrillated on the spot. So when um, when they got me on the, the stretcher, um, you know, they cut your T-shirt, cut your bra, and um, <clears throat> the paramedic said, oh, can you feel this? And I said, well, what are you doing? And they were flicking my feet to see if I, my body is sort of shut down. And they said, okay, you can't feel it. We're going to shock you. And I thought, shocked? What? And then I heard them flick a switch and everyone uh. stepped back. And I'm like, holy shit. Anyway, I was def- externally defibrillated, just fully conscious. But I was about to say, <laughs> when, when you watch that uh, on the TV or the movies, the person's always unconscious. So yeah. y- if you don't mind me asking, um, and I hope no one else has to have to experience this, what's, what's the sensation? Because Again, explain what, because, again, what my experience, you see it on TV and the, the body comes up off the, the gurney, so to speak. What, what happens in real life? Yeah, that happens. <clears throat> so it felt like you were hit by a truck or hit by something massive, like right through the chest, and you felt yourself come off the bed and then land, and then I just started ripping at pads. To get them off. (laughs) I just get them off because I didn't know if another one was coming. And I just said, right, you know, we'll need to stop. But, you know, everything was peaceful. It had fixed it. So it It did, it clicked your heart back into where it was meant to be. Yeah, so they must have, you know, stop-started my heart. That is Emma Carney next up on the show. All righty, let's get back to Madge. So, Madge, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. You're in, I think you're in Egypt for four or so years? Three years, yeah. Three years. So, so, do you remember when your parents said, right, we're now moving to Australia? <laughs> um, yeah, so we've been trying to get a visa for a while and we just couldn't. Um, and then finally, um, you know, we got granted one and, uh, yeah, so it was about a six-month process, um, and then we had to come up with the with the money for the for the airfares. Big family. Um, we were lucky enough. We had um, dad met a priest um, that was that was over from France, and he told him about our situation. And then he went back and spoke to their um, to his parish back in France, and they they um, they raised some money and. Um, yeah, very grateful for, for them, and uh, and then yeah, got the got the tickets, got the flights, and 
off we came. Did you know, like when your mum and dad tell you, right, we're moving to Australia, that is like me saying to my 11-year-old, right, we're moving to Khartoum, Sudan. They're going to have no concept of what we're even talking about. I presume you hadn't even heard of Australia at this point. I've heard of Australia because of other people um, right. coming coming here, other, other migrants and refugees, but in terms of what it looked like, you know, even Melbourne, all that, all that, all I could, I heard a lot of people talk about Sydney, um, mm-hmm. but no, nothing. Um, the only thing is was probably um, kangaroo. Uh, <laughs> people, the people really use their imagination. Um, there, there were stories going around, you know, uh, roads made out of glasses, um, <laughs> uh, milk coming out of the tap. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was, I had no idea. So, Madge, tell me, th- this country, which you and I are both fortunate enough to call home, mm-hmm. is built on migration and migrants. We've all migrated here, rightfully or wrongly. We, we've all migrated to Australia. W- what are the challenges mm-hmm. for migrants that you faced moving to a completely different country and a completely different language and a completely different way of life? I think assimilating, um, it's, a, it's, it's completely different. Um, the way people live here, uh, how things operate, um, but also, um, you know, just, I wouldn't say identity crisis, but just I've left my culture where I grew up and stuff. I still got my mum and dad at home and then I come here uh, I don't look like uh, my uh, my classmates or my teammates and stuff like that. So, and then on top of that, um, there was some racism. So it was um, there was there was a lot of challenges that I've faced um, growing up. Uh, but you know, as soon as I um, as soon as I knew how to speak speak the language, um, uh, sort of. Uh, Started to play footy, uh, made made some friends. Yeah, um, things became so much easier. So, so on the there's a few things you brought up there. O- on the language, did you speak any English when you arrived in Australia? No, I didn't speak a word of English at all. So, mate, how how long after you arrived in Australia did you go to school? Um, so, probably around uh, three weeks because there was a process to. Um, uh, get vaccinated, um, you know, start building a medical history, find out, you know, stuff I've had when I was young or, and all that stuff. And then, um, yeah, being, regist- being regist- registered as a, um, as a resident. And then uh, we went to an English language school centre for, I think it was about three months, thereabouts. Um, it was pretty intense, you know, trying to cramp so much. Yeah. So much little in so little time, but um, did our best, and then uh, after that, um, had an option to either go to grade six, start grade six, or or go to um, start year seven. Um, but I, I saw the opportunity of, you know, if I went to high school, that I'd be with my uh, would be would be with my older brothers. So I was like, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, um, gonna go to high school. And um, I think if I had my time again, I'd probably go back to primary school. Just it's a bit daunting. Um, I don't know, being a bit uh, not a, not even 
10 and a bit, um, starting, year, yeah, 10 turning 11, starting year seven. So I did that and, uh, yeah, went straight to year seven. So. so every kid that has ever changed schools, it is a hard thing to do. So if my daughter leaves a local primary school and goes into Geelong, it's a process. And as a parent, you're concerned and they slowly make their way. What's your first day of school like when you have come from the other side of the world, you don't have any friends at the school, as you say, you're only just getting a grasp of the language and, as you said, you look different to the typical student at that school. Yeah. What's what's that like, Madge? Oh, it was pretty daunting. It was really daunting, <gasps> yeah. I, um, you know, like I did, didn't want to go to school, um, but obviously I was with my brother and stuff, but just the language barrier. There were some things I just didn't know how to say um, or express uh, what I wanted to do, so... That, that was a challenge in itself. And then I guess uh, when it was recess and lunchtime, I, uh, I didn't know how to speak the English well. So a lot of the time I was just so either with my brother or um, with other kids in a similar position as me. So that was, um, that was a tough part about it, yeah. So, mate, for the average person that is established in Australia of any background, creed or colour, if they come across someone that is going through the early stages of your journey that you went through, mm-hmm. what can the average punter on the street do to make the new migrant's journey easier? Um, look, I think it, it doesn't hurt to just, I don't know, just be kind or whatever or if someone asks ask for help. And the help most of the time was um, directions, <laughs> how to get on the bus. Uh, I don't know where the local bank is or um, huh. when you go to, uh, when we used to do grocery shopping, uh, my dad didn't know how to say, my dad could speak English, but uh, there were just some things we, we just had to know what the word is. So because um, my siblings were younger, uh, there were still kids in that, uh, maybe around Hendrix's age and you know, kids eat yogurt and stuff. He didn't know how to say yogurt. So he'd, um, he'd be saying cheese and people were like, what are you on about? Like, you know, so so just, just little things. Um, I think that it's just just every day, you know, things we take for granted um, that would never, I probably wouldn't even think about now really, but. Yeah. Mm. So where does, where does footy, let's talk about footy for a bit. Let's just light things up a bit, mate, because it's like, but well, no, people will listen to this and they'll start to think, wow, this is uh-huh. people so out of their comfort zone and being forced into certain situations that are extremely difficult when just to get a litre of milk at the shop is a bloody operation and a half of the way you've described it, which I, I, can, mm-hmm. I can hear what you're saying to me. But when does footy first come across your space? Um. So when we first moved here and then, uh, you know, a, few, a couple of weeks later, we, we finally got our own place, you know, a big backyard and all that stuff. And uh, you get a welcome package because uh, the government sort of helps you um, with, all, with all that process. We got given a Collingwood scarf and a Collingwood uh, uh, hat. Well, so Collingwood have got some sneaky system through the government where they try and get your early doors. <laughs> yeah. I think wow. it's St. Vincent's, uh, the St. Vincent's charity. So, uh, yeah, they do, they do do amazing things, uh, Collingwood, through the charity. They really do. Yeah, so I think it was around there. So there was 
that's the first time I was exposed to anything to do with footy. And um, yeah, it's the first time I heard of Collingwood. And then watched the games on uh, on telly Friday night. And it was it was around, yeah, 2003 where Collingwood were really a powerhouse. And, um, yeah. and then um, obviously at school, I'd see, I'd see kids and stuff playing, playing a playing at recess and lunchtime. But I, uh, but mum and dad would always change the channel. They just thought it was violent and all that stuff. So they never, never really gave it the chance at home. Um, yeah, one of the kids asked me one day if I, if I wanted to come and have a kick with them. And um, for me, that was, that was everything. I've been waiting um, for someone to invite me to come and, um, you know, I suppose come make, go make some new friends. And uh, when that happened, you know, I didn't, I could not kick, could not kick the Sharon at all. <laughs> I was hopeless, but I, I could sort of mark the ball a little bit, and it was a bit lanky then. And so, had something in common with uh, uh, some kids and made some friends. And then from then on, they, um, they invited me. The footy season was coming up. Uh, local footy club. This was at Taylor's Lakes Footy Club. That's where I first started. I, uh, I went down um, to get picked up after school or go to one of the kids' house after school and then go to training and, and dad would pick me up or, um, uh, or just ride my bike to training at times. Uh, and then I had my first season of footy. I really enjoyed it. Can you remember your first ever game of footy? Yeah, yeah. I, um, Who was it against and how would you go? What are your memories? <laughs> it was... Uh, I think it was East Kilo or somewhere like that. Okay. And how old would you have been at this stage? 14, yeah. 14. So what position did you line up in? Uh, I played in the ruck, yeah. Okay. I went straight to the ruck and up, and up forward a little bit. And uh, But believe it or not, it was uh, like I played a little bit in the ruck and up forward, but on the wing a fair bit. <laughs> yeah. So um, first season went all right. Uh, we played. We played in the prelim, um, so it's under 14 Bs. Had had a really good time. Really enjoyed it. Um, but um, you know, there's there's one person that I um, there's two people that I really I'm really grateful for uh, in terms of my footy journey. Um, a couple by the name of Hop and Danny. Um, they used to be my Saturday school teachers, and um, they just uh, just normal people, and um, they just. That helped me with my English on on Saturday mornings, and sometimes if I was lucky enough, they'd take me to the movies. So, um, and Hop would he would drive me to um to my games, and um, yeah, it was um and that's when you asked earlier how could um, how could the everyday person help out? Yeah, I think something like that along those along those lines. But um, yeah. So what is what is Madge? One of the great things in Australian life is the acceptance within sporting clubs. Like if you if you can go out and have a crack, it, it, immediately you've made 20, 40, 60 friends, whether it's cricket or footy. What what did a sporting organisation mean to you as a as a young fella in a completely foreign country trying to find his way and make some mates? Mm, I think it probably just um, really um, kept, me on a, kept me on a straight and narrow around that age, 14 to 15. I didn't really... Because I guess, you know, mum and dad were trying to make ends meet. Um, didn't really had a didn't didn't have a lot of luxury. Um, you know, after school uh, gave me something to do. Um, I guess you know, if I played on the weekend, 
it was a conversation starter um, with other people, and then um, it made me it made me start watching footy more. So um, all of a sudden, I had something in common with people, and I didn't feel that different. So, <laughs> hey mate, we'll, we'll progress your footy journey a little bit. It's a great answer. April two thousand eleven, playing for Werribee now. <laughs> so you you pick up the ball on the halfback flank, and I remember I remember clearly someone showing me at work and saying, "Have a look at this fella for Werribee. He, he's unbelievable." <laughs> you pick up the ball on the halfback flank for Werribee and kick. It's one of the best goals I've ever seen. That, that like I don't know if that changed things for you, but that's the first time when I came across. Your incredible work, Madge. It's flicked off hands. McCarthy can't quite trap it. O'Dwyer's in there again. Now McCaffer. Oh. The hand pass. McCarthy wasn't accepting it. And Madge Door, the big Ruckman, streaming off halfback. Oh. He's had oh. two bounces. Got it, big man. Three bounces. Big goals. Madge Door. Oh, that is beautiful. What that a goal. Is, that is magic. That is, Peter. That is magic football. Gee whiz, that is great to watch. Now that was, um, you know, I've been uh, been gifted with um, some long legs and uh, you know got a little bit of speed. But man, I don't know what I was thinking. I've been, I think I've burnt about four blokes that day. <laughs> 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 yeah, but once I got going, I um, yeah, I just went for it. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was it was it was nice. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence to just start playing. Um, Good footy. He's gone for it. And then he's thought, how good... St- oh, keep going. He's really going to give it off. And he keeps going. Tell me that boy won't be a player. And look at the kick. Absolutely perfect over the goal umpire's head. You know, Brad Scott has always been a big believer of me. And I think uh, from then onwards, they just, they're, they're just glimpses that that people have seen and but would never couldn't string it together. And... Um, that's when it started happening a bit more. You mentioned earlier on uh, the scourge that is racism, Madge, and probably in the last year we've started to really try and get an understanding of that on this podcast with various people like Michael Holding mm-hmm. blew me away and really explained to me what it can do to someone's soul, really, to be racially abused. You talk in the book about... Um, being racially abused in Egypt, and then you talk about a particular game of VFL football that broke my heart to read about, Madge. Uh, without me asking too many questions, what does racism mean to you and what can it do to a person? I guess, um, you know, throughout my uh, throughout my life, I've, uh, I've had experienced it in various, in various ways. Um, when I was little in Egypt, I... Um, there was there wasn't much I could do about it. Just um, if I retaliated, then you know there was ramifications. So either just ran or or just copped it. But um, yeah, when it happened in the free game uh, in the VFL, um, it was a. Uh, I guess I've worked so hard, um, like you know, playing footy uh, on an AFL list. I. Um, I've, um, I've assimilated and, you know, it just uh, it, it just made me realise that there was, um, there was, there was still uh, parts of me that uh, people will always point out that I'm different and, 
uh, that was heartbreaking, and it, uh, it, uh, I was pretty upset by it. But at the same time, um, the amount of support and you know, a lot of people got around me, and especially the footy club. But uh, when it happens, I think it just, it's a, it's just a little reminder, um, just someone telling you, I, well, you, you're not one of us, but. I think I've tried now. Now I'm a bit older. I don't, don't if it, when it happens, I, I don't really give it the energy that it, it needs because I um I look at all the wonderful things around me, um, the great people that have helped me um, get so far in life, and I um and I was and I always look and reflect on what would mum and dad say or what they've been through, and I think they've been through some some pretty rough patches in their life, and I think. If they've retaliated along the way somewhere, then I guess uh, we wouldn't be here. Uh, um, so, but I, I try to use it as a as a learning, uh, you know, try and teach people um, how it actually makes me feel, and uh, it's hurtful. Um, so I think if you come from that point of view, people can understand that. Uh, yeah, they just they might be just words, but um, it can really hurt someone. Um, uh, by saying something uh, as nasty as that. So, yeah. It's so magic. Don't get me wrong, I'm far from a perfect person, far from a perfect person, but it just seems such a basic, just such a basic approach to life to ostensibly give people a hard time due to the colour of their skin. Like, I, I it... As I said, mate, I'm far from perfect, but it makes no sense to me. I, I'm sure it makes no sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I think we're just, it's great. I mean, in terms of since, since coming to the system, um, you know, it doesn't happen on the field. Um, no, but, there, but, but there are still other elements of it. Uh, the biggest thing for me, and that's why I, um, you know, we've still got a, a, a bit of work to do in this area is, when Hendrix is old enough, uh, mate, hopefully he's, he's still not into having to deal with, um, you know, with, with racism and um, hopefully in, by then when he's playing footy, um, it's not it's not something he has to um, yeah. deal with. So uh, that's why I think, you know, whenever I get the opportunity uh, to teach people about my culture, where I've come from, um, you know, I'm not I'm not too dissimilar um, to 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 some of the uh, life experiences that they've had. Uh, I think we can find a common ground. That's the end of Magic Door Part A. Join us now for Part B. Listener.